Today, I'm very excited to have Bill Wagner back on the program. Bill is on the .NET Docs team, specializing in or focusing on C-sharp and related managed code. Did I get that right, Bill? That is pretty much it. That is where my main focus is these days. Great. I want to talk with you about uh, uh, C-sharp 10. Why don't we start with the documentation, since that's your focus, and let's talk about the documentation for C-sharp 10 and what's coming down the pipe. Okay, so in C Sharp 10, you know, we've, we've continued to add things that in, improve developer productivity, you know, new enhancements to structure types with record structs, where the compiler writes a lot of methods for you, new enhancements to pattern matching, different kinds of property patterns, uh, some new syntax on Lambda uh, expressions. And a lot of those, what we're doing is making it easier to write code with a little less ceremony. You know, the compiler infers a few more things. There's new ways to express what you're trying to do. And that really now has to ripple through a lot of our introductory documentation. Um, And if you look at where it's at right now, our initial, you know, get started and our fundamental section really needs some improvement. Like I'll start with get started, right? If you think of the classic way we taught C Sharp, you know, you do file new console project. And then, you know, you having taught a lot too, we'd spend the next two hours explaining what those using statements were at the top, that namespace, and then there's public static class program, public static void main, and then there's console.writeline hello world. And then there's some closing brackets and so on. And it was noon before people understood that that one thing was writing output to the console. So this is one of the areas where we're removing a lot of ceremony. And that now has to get reflected in how we teach the language. With a combination of top-level statements, implicit usings, and global usings, that that hello world program is now one line that just says console.writeline hello world. There we go. So in that one instance, we're now focusing on exactly the one thing we're showing you first. Just that one statement doing something to the console. And now for beginners and for people coming into the language, that makes a much smoother on-ramp. There aren't all of these concepts that you have to do before you can write any program. So we start with just write top-level statements, just write a program. It looks kind of like a script, but it does the things you want to do. And you can see ASP.NET is leveraging this quite a bit with uh, something called minimal APIs, where now extending onto this whole top-level statements concept, an ASP.NET program can be a lot simpler with a lot less ceremony, depending on which features you're turning on. As you turn on more features, you know, add a DI container, add more controllers, add routing, and so on. Now it gets more complicated, but because, you know, as a developer, you're now interested in those concepts, it becomes the right time to introduce those. Yes, that that's uh, that sounds right. That sounds great. I remember very much saying, okay, ignore these using statements, ignore this static, we'll come back to it, ignore that. <laughs> so right. the ability to show a single line that that looks rational to folks and doesn't look like, oh, I have to work for 20 minutes to even get started. That's a huge improvement for the on-ramp for sure. And then now as you, as you keep following this through, you'll see these same productivity enhancements throughout a lot of things in the language. Um, if you started to play with uh, pattern matching, and one exercise I do a lot when I'm teaching is I'll take a whole series of nested if statements that are checking different variables and checking the value of a property. And if it's in this range or in that range or 
if it's null or if it's doing this and so on. And I can refactor something that's maybe 30, 40 lines of nested if-then statements into about 10 lines of pattern matching that just has, here's the variables I'm looking at, and here's conditions on each of those variables, and then do this computation. And it is, is much more concise, but much more importantly than that, it's so much easier to read. It's just, okay, here's the variables I'm looking at, here's their values, and here's what happens when that arm is the one that's met. And so following these kinds of things through, what you end up with is this ability to write code that's cleaner and just expresses exactly what you're trying to do and doesn't have all the ceremony we used to use. You know, people like you and me that have used C Sharp since 1.0, you know, we remember, you know, using... Sorry, our plow person is here, so I'll no problem. start that again in a minute. You know, so people like you and me who have used and taught C Sharp since 1.0, you know, we even remember non-generic collections, right? And having to cast everything when you pulled an element out of an array list and, you know, no one does that anymore. So those are the kinds of things that we really look at in the language to make it more, um, you know, make it easier to use. Let me let me interrupt you slightly. You were talking about making the on ramp easier and documented. Is there a way for someone who is comfortable with what I think of as baseline C sharp, say through six or seven, mm-hmm. to make the adjustment up to ten? And and because that during from seven through ten is when a lot of new concepts were introduced, like records and pattern matching, and there's quite a few others. So is there a place in the documentation to enter if you're already a C sharp programmer but want to catch up? Yes. And there's a section that I have that's what's new in C Sharp that goes through each one of those versions, 8, 9, and 10, and says, here's every feature that was added. Here's a really brief description of it. And here are links to other places in the documentation that explain each of those in a lot more detail. You're my hero. We try. <laughs> um, you know, and that that is one of the things I'm going to be working on as well over the next few months is really making that navigation easier. You know, and you just mentioned one of our challenges right now. You know, you fall into the C Sharp guide and, you know, because for so long it had been catered toward people who have used C-sharp for years, um, you know, it was very hard if you were new to the language. And we want to make it easier for people who are new to .NET and new to C-sharp without making it harder for people who know what they're looking for or know, you know, I, I knew C-sharp at version 6 or version 7, but I haven't really kept up. What's new? What, what, sh- what habits should I change and make that journey just as easy? Uh, so there's going to be a lot of moving things around. Um, so I'm going to move a lot of people's cheese over the next few months. But what I'm hoping is I put it in places that's a lot easier to find. One of the things, the discussions I had when Mads was on was the difference between explaining why you use something, when you use something. That is to say, here's the conditions under which I should think pattern matching. Right. And and some of these I'm still working through myself. And my own way, the way I use some of these, especially when I'm investigating new features, is I'll make it a habit for like, say, three months that when I see the spec for a new new feature and it's out in preview, I will use it every place I think I might possibly want it, which I know is wrong, but it starts to get me looking at it and getting used to seeing what it looks like and discovering places where it works well. Um, so pattern matching, you know, my where I've landed on that one as a specific example is I look at it and say, you know, here I'm seeing all of these conditions and this, you know, set of switches which statements or set of nested ifs starts to look pretty hard to reason about, you know, how, you know, how does code execute walking through all of these branches? And then I'll maybe I'll try
try to refactor it in pattern matching and go, does that look more clear when I read it? Yes. Um, and my bias, I would say, especially for people learning these features is when you're not used to the feature yet, lean a little bit toward the feature just because, you know, by nature, it's going to look a little bit strange because you haven't seen it before. But as you get used to it, then it's like, oh, this just looks so natural. Um, and, um, you know, that's one of the ones that in a workshop with uh, Kathleen Dollard is one of my favorite exercises is we will take all of the new features and I'll give a real brief description of it and then split everybody into groups and say, I want you to write coding standards for when you would use these features and when you wouldn't. Because it really makes people think about scenarios where it makes sense, yes. times when it doesn't, um, you know, and so on. And, you know, I'm, and I'm sure you went over some of this with MADS. Some of the features that have been added, you may not use at all, at least not in most most of the code you or I write. Um, things like function pointers, which are a faster way to do delegates. And unless you're writing some really seriously intense um, performance critical code, you know, like the runtime team does, you probably won't use. Um, you know, similar with some of the things like ref structs and so on, which were really geared toward the performance of, you know, the .NET framework libraries, the, the runtime libraries that you get as part of .NET. They may not be something that you use that often or at all. All, but you'll get the improvements from those features existing because the runtime team gets to use them and write faster code for things like ASP.NET or any of the other workloads. The impression that I have, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the three things that have come along that C-sharp programmers really want to know about are the new switch uh, expressions. Is that mm -hmm. the right word? Yep. And and uh, uh, records mm -hmm. and pattern matching. So, uh, are there other big pieces that I'm missing in that list? Um, I think those are the biggest ones. I would lump uh, pattern matching in with the switch expressions um, because switch expressions are one of the syntax elements of pattern matching. Okay. Okay. So I would I would put those two together. And then I would add a third bucket that is just the little things that mean you write less braces and brackets a lot of times. Um, and things there that I would say are things like a file scope namespace. So going back to our original example, and now your program has grown, so you want to use namespaces. If you look about every code base we've seen in almost the entire 20 years of .NET, a file, you know, all the code in a single file is probably in one namespace, right? Yes. So let's save some horizontal tabbing and a couple curly braces, and we'll just say at the top of the file, if you put namespace and give it a name, semicolon, everything that follows in that file is in that namespace. That's sweet. So it's, you know, it's very small. It's not a big deal, but again, it saves you some horizontal tabbing. It's just a little less ceremony. Um, and we have the same thing now with the using statement, you know, so you would do something like using stream equals file open, whatever. And now you don't have to put the curly braces around that. You can just put a semicolon on it and that using automatically closes at the end of the enclosing scope. Right, whether that be a method or a loop or you know an if branch, whatever. Right. So you just right. gain, lose a couple, you know, get rid of a couple lines, get rid of a couple, you know, another some horizontal space there, and it just looks a little cleaner. Let, let's talk about using as an overloaded term. Let's talk about the using statement that goes at the top for using uh, other namespaces. I right. understand. I understand that there's been a significant change there in terms of global using statements. Right. So there are two kind of intertwined features. 
one that's in the language and one that is in MS Build and the SDK. So first, the language feature. You can now, anywhere in your project, add something that's a global using. So you'll say using, I'm forgetting the syntax now. I think it's either using global or global using. I think it's global using. Yes, just looked it up. Um, so you say global using and then give it a namespace. And it is as though you added that namespace directive to every file in your project. Okay? That's really great. So again, something like, say, system that you're going to use everywhere. You can just put global using system in one file and you don't have to include it everywhere else. Okay, so now that's just a nice way to say, you know, I know this is a web project. Here's the five usings I use in the web, but I'm just going to put them everywhere, right? Or my corporate utilities, every project has to use. So, you know, that's in a global using. The related feature is something called implicit usings, which you have to turn on by default in, in .NET 6. And what will happen there is there is an include file that's going to get added to your project that based on the... Um, the package that you included or the the um, workload you picked, it is going to include usings automatically for you, global usings automatically. So if it's a console project, you'll get system and system collections.generic. And I think there's one or two others. If it's a web project, you'll get those and system.web and you know a few others that are specific to web projects but are used by all web projects. If it's WPF, you'll get system.drawing and a few others as well. And that way you don't have to add those every everywhere and it's just automatically included with the SDK. Very nice. In passing before earlier, mm -hmm. you said something about a feature that effectively writes code for you. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant by that? Um, okay. So in this instance where I was talking about the using statement, it's simply an include file that the SDK adds to your compilation. But there is another feature that is part of the Roslyn APIs. It's called code generators. And what that does is it is, you know, you're probably already familiar with seeing analyzers and code fixers that look at your code and provide hints that you can mod that you know you can you know replace this declaration with this this simpler using or what have you right and what code generators do is they will as part of the compilation write some code effectively in memory and then that gets added to what the compiler produces for output well okay? tell so, me what that interaction is like so what you could do is like if you think of um like let's say you're writing a wpf application so you want to on your view models have um the property changed event or i notify property changed that interface and what you can do then is if you had a code generator you could put an attribute on the properties of your view model or even just on your view model and then that code generator as part of compilation could inject code and add it into every one of the setters that says oh hey this property changed i'll raise the appropriate event so it would handle things like that and and that's already in c sharp 10 yes I got to get my hands on that. It is it is fun to work with. One of the, uh, I don't know who's doing this, I, frankly. I don't know whether it's C Sharp or it's Visual Studio, but there's um, a feature where suggested code comes up mm -hmm. and you hit tab to accept that code. Okay. Uh, is what is that part of? What is that the language or is that the the tool? Uh, that's that is part of the tool. That is Visual Studio does that, and that is using features like code generators or the Roslyn SDK to effectively read your code and then make suggested improvements to it. It's an amazing feature. I, I just as a, a side, I, when I was showing it to somebody, I put in inside a method, I put in foo and then uh, a, and it came back with foo. B, a bar B, I just blew the joke. 
but it literally it came back with Barbie, and it was like, wait a minute, right? <laughs> so that is um, Code Lens, which is a uh, machine learning algorithm that has gone through you know lots of public code and recognizes patterns, not pattern matching patterns, but common constructs that we've that you know that this machine learning algorithm has seen and suggests things based on what it sees. It's uh, it's an extraordinary experience. The one I find amazing is like when I'm working with records. I'll often use a person as an example. And as soon as I type, you know, public string first name, and then I'll get suggested public string last name and so yep. on. And, and uh, it works well with uh, if you use the construct, I know we're on a tangent, but if you use the construct of a private backing variable in a public uh uh, property. It it does a tremendous amount of that for you. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I took you off on a tangent. That's okay. But that goes to a nice tangent where I've, that is one of the other smaller new features that I've really adopted is that at this point, I almost never declare the backing field. Um, the property is usually almost always enough, uh, especially with the additions of uh, in it only properties, um, you know, with just a getter and um, or with an init setter, which allows you to use property initialization, um, but then can't be set later. And why does that eliminate the backing variable? I, it just declares it for me. The compiler writes it for me. Oh, nice. So if I were to say, so like in that record example, or if I were to say, you know, public string, first name, you know, open bracket, get, now it can only be set in a constructor. Mm -hmm. If I were to say public string, first name, get, semi colon in it, now I can set it in a constructor or a property initializer, and that's it. Yes. This returns me to documentation, which is, is there's A, there are records and, and, and pattern matching, mm -hmm. which are new and breaking my head. So, so I'm eager to talk to you about the documentation for that. And then there's, as you said, a sprinkling of these other small features, which you, you have the feeling that, oh, I'm not taking advantage because I didn't happen to stumble across this. So is there a place where that's aggregated? and covered in the documentation? Right. So I'll start with the second one. Second question first. If you go to the What's New in C Sharp page, it's going to take you version by version through each one of these new little improvements and give you a one small example of each one and then point to places where we've written a lot more about each one of the features. So for anybody who's been using C Sharp and is like, well, maybe I'm just using old things instead of new things, that would be the best place to just get a quick refresher on it. Okay. And then right now there's an article each for C Sharp 10, C Sharp 9, and C Sharp 8. And if you're further out of date than that, there's an article on the C Sharp version history where you can go through each version all the way back to 1.0 and go, here's what was added and here's where you can learn a little bit more about it. Some of these features, um, especially records and pattern matching, remind me of the advent of Link, mm -hmm. where the, the first experience is, what is this? And the second is, this is too complicated, I'll never use it. And somewhere down the line, it's totally integrated into your code. Right. The Lambda expression, it's totally integrated into your code. And and I think a lot of that is what you were talking about, is leaning into the new uh, approach and seeing where it buys you and what it buys you. Right. And the way I talk about records, and there are now two variations on records. You can do record classes, which you can also just write record and give it a name, and that would be a class type, or a record struct. Okay. And the way to think about both of those is it is a way to t create a type that uses value-based equality. So two records are equal if they are the same type and all of their properties each have the same value. Okay. Okay. 
And what the compiler does when you declare a record is it automatically does the operator equal, operator not equal, get hash code, a few other things here and there that make value-based equality work. Okay. Yes. Because most of these are going to have something like they just they're they're holding data for you. It's also going to create a two string for you that automatically prints the value of each one of the properties. Okay. I'm still with you. So that's just something else you didn't have to write. Right. So far so good. And then because records are either a record class or a record struct, you can write whatever members you want inside that record for any responsibilities that you might want in addition to what's generated by the compiler just by putting some properties in it. Okay. But the key the key thing about records, do I have this right, is that is that the members are immutable. They are immutable by default. Okay, so it's not enforced. So by that what I mean is you can write other properties into a record that can change and can be mutated. You can write methods that change the value of any of the properties that aren't part of the primary constructor, which I'll get to in a sec. Okay. So then the final feature that records added is something called a primary constructor, which is a type of record that we refer to as a positional record. So, so if I, let's take our person example. I can write public record person, open curly brace, public string, first name, open curly brace, get, close curly brace, public string, last name, you know, same thing. Okay. Or I can write public record person, open parentheses, string, first name, comma, string, last name, close parentheses, semicolon, okay? That second really short one-line definition is a positional record. It will write the properties for a first name and last name property that match the things inside the parentheses for you, and it will create both of those as init-only properties, and then it will generate all the other things that come along with records. So if you're creating a record and the only thing it is doing is creating a set of properties for some data type, you can write a positional record and say, here is this type. What it has is basically init-only properties for these, you know, two, three, seven, whatever properties that the record contains, close, you know, close parentheses, semicolon, and you're done. And the entire body of that type is going to be written by the compiler. That's stunning. One last question on records. Aside from doing that kind of work for you, as I understand it, records are a type of well, I don't know if they're a type of class. They're essentially records of classes. And so the question is, when would I use records as opposed to a class? Is it when I want what you just described, or is there an additional reason to use them? Right. So what I've usually done, and first I want to make one minor correction. If I just declare a record, it is a class. I can declare a record struct, and then it is a value type. It is a struct, okay? Yes, I, I hear that difference. That's new in 10, right? That is new in 10. And now what I'm doing mostly with the code that I write is, if the primary responsibility of a type is to hold data. You know, my examples are things like a point or a person or an order in, you know, customer order, you know, that whole um, kind of DTO data transfer object style where there really isn't a lot of behavior, where there's very minimal behavior and its primary purpose is to store a set of properties. I would always write a record. So much stuff gets done just correctly. With one caveat I'll get to in a sec. If the primary purpose of a type is much more about the behavior, then I will write a class. Class may not even have one or two, may only have one or two properties or something like that, like say a web client, but it has a lot of behavior attached to it. So that's where I make that distinction. That is a tremendous distinction. I, I've been struggling with when you use which. It's been explained to me before, don't get me wrong, but that that uh, concise description of the difference really just went home and, and uh, that's very, very helpful. So if I go to the what's new, I'm going to 
Legacy Records listed a brief description and then a link to a full documentation. Did I hear you correctly? That's correct. And then I want to introduce one caveat of what I just said on when I pick a record and when I pick a class. Okay. If you're using Entity Framework, remember that Entity Framework is based on reference equality as to how it knows, oh, I pulled an object, I, I pulled a database row out of some table and I made an object in memory. And if I pull that same database row out of that same table, I'm going to hand back the same object. Mm-hmm. Okay. So because of that and that behavior, which is very important how Entity Framework works, if you are creating types to use with Entity Framework, don't create a record because then you're going to get value-based equality and Entity Framework isn't going to handle that correctly. Is that true with SQLite as well? That one I don't know. You're, um, I would expect the SQLite um, query provider to, you know, I would expect them to um, have the documentation on that. Yes, I'm sorry. It's just as a Xamarin programmer, that's where I go right, right. away. And there again, I I don't write about that as much. And there's a lot more details on the Entity Framework core documentation on how that all the new C sharp features relate to what Entity Framework does. Okay. Uh, so are there other things that are about to happen in documentation that we should know about? Probably the the biggest one, like I said, is really working on that journey so that it is updated for people learning C sharp. You know, over the over the years, we've gotten this point where we teach it historically and say things like, you know, this is how we used to do it. And now in C sharp four, we do it this way. And in C sharp five, we do it this other way and so on. And it was completely reworking that that whole section to be here's what we do now. And then, you know, here's code you will probably see in the field as you're maintaining apps that were written, you know, more than two years ago. And here's how how, how that maps to these newer features, but kind of flipping that lens. Uh, you're going to see more integration with Microsoft Learn, you know, which is our Learn platform. Uh, there's a great new module out that two people on my team wrote, David Pine and Cam Soper, that walk you through a lot of things to work with uh, nullable reference types, which was introduced in C Sharp 8 and is still one of those things people are, some people are struggling with, some get it right away, you know, and, and this is a good way to get a good handle on, on how to work with those types. Excellent. Let me ask you a self question. I'm working on a large project and it is using C Sharp 7 and Xamarin. Uh, the latest Xamarin. If we take the leap all the way up to C Sharp 10, how much are we going to break? One hopes not too much. Uh, the one concern I would have, since you did mention C Sharp 7, is if this is based on .NET Framework and not .NET Core, or .NET 5 or 6, um, because C Sharp 7.3 is the last supported C Sharp version on .NET Framework. Okay. The, the framework that gets delivered as a Windows component. Um, so that would be the one big pain. Right. Um, I believe we're on .NET 5 at this point. Okay, so .NET 5, you should be able to go immediately to C Sharp 9. Okay. Right, and then one thing that you would probably want to do anyway is upgrade to .NET 6 fairly soon. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is .NET 5 is not an LTS release. Right. So it will go out of support fairly quickly. .NET 6 is an LTS release. So then you could stay on that one for, you know, until like .NET 8, I think. Where LTS is long-term support, right? That's correct. So there's kind of two trains there. If you want to move reasonably quickly, you can take each new version and upgrade to each new version. If you're on a slower cycle and you want to move a little bit more slowly, you would stay on the LTS trains and go, you know, effectively it went from .NET 3.1, you'd skip 5 and go to 6, you'll skip 7 and 
go to eight. So basically every year you're going to get a new .NET, new C Sharp, and all of the even numbered versions of those will be LTS. Great, great. Well, this was um, a little here and there because of me, but this was a great deal of information. And I am going to revisit uh, your documentation, haven't been there in a little while, and try to get my head around some of these concepts that I've been uh, fighting with, frankly, uh, because I'm getting old and new concepts are, you know, (laughs) not as easy as they used to be. It's all that experience showing, Jesse. That's what it is. Thank you. Good save. (laughs) (laughs) Feel the same way some days. Well, your knowledge is fantastic and your ability to convey it is fantastic. I'm uh, very pleased to have had you come on and explain some of this and hopefully we can get you on again soon uh, to talk about what's coming down the pike with C-sharp 11 and forward. C-sharp 11, the Nigel Tufnell release. I'm sorry, you got to explain that one. It's it's one louder. Oh, Old movie Spinal Tap, yes. Yes. Let's go to 11. Yeah. On, on, on that note, thank you, Bill. Let me, uh, let me bring this to a close and then don't go away. All righty.